Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? You spend Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. 
It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Zoda Beach Resort in Longboat Key, Florida. It's amazing every time I come down here because the sand is really, really white. And uh, this place is great. It's uh, It gives you the opportunity to use it as a hub and get all over the area, everywhere from Bradenton to Sarasota, even Tampa. Very manageable. What's amazing to me about this region of Florida, which so many of you have not yet visited, and most of you don't even know where it is, it, you know, to me, the geographic ignorance of my fellow travelers has... has it never astounds me anymore. It just bothers me. Uh, the people in Fort Lauderdale were, were penalized when they had the BP oil spill and it wasn't there. And most of the Northeasterners don't come to this part of Florida, and they should, uh, if you really want to see some amazing beaches. But more than that, amazing natural resources. And joining me right now, the Director of Historical Resources for Manatee County, Kathy Slusser. How are you? Good morning. Yeah. So let's talk about that, because within three miles of where we are right now, there's a wealth of life that if you didn't know where to look for it, you wouldn't see it. In Manatee County and the Bradenton area has a rich history that a lot of people don't know about. Although our settlers didn't come here till the 1840s, for some people that's not very old, but for us it makes it easy to access the history, and we have a lot of good information. Listen, I had to learn a couple of years ago, you have cowboys. We have cowboys. Actually, they didn't like to be called cowboys. They preferred they called? to be called cow hunters or cowmen. They were not boys. Cowmen. We've never heard, <laughs> I've never heard that. It doesn't really work well in, in country music songs either. No, it doesn't. You know, I'm a cow man. No, no, it doesn't, <laughs> somehow, right? But you, you have them. Yes. Uh, Florida actually was the largest cattle producing state for many years. And Florida kept the Civil War going longer than it should have because it provided beef to the Confederacy. So a lot of people don't realize... And an army moves on its stomach. Yes. A lot of people don't realize how rich our agricultural history is in Florida. Now, you're a Florida native. I am a Florida native. From this region? From I grew up in St. Petersburg. Okay, that's close enough. Mm -hmm. That's close enough. But the history here, uh, you know, the railroad, you know, when we go back to Flagler, you know, people forget. We, people think of railroads going east to west. They forget. The railroad went north to south along the east coast, but the residents who lived here mostly used boats. You hear about the prairie schooners out west. Well, they actually used real schooners, and the water was their main source of transportation. The Manatee River was like an interstate for them. And how long did that go? It was from the 1840s when the early settlers arrived all the way up until the end of World War I uh, in the 1910s. People depended on the, the rivers and the waterways for their main source of transportation. Now, you and I can sit here at this wonderful resort and talk about it, but how do people still see it? Uh, it's very easy to see. The Manatee River runs right through the middle of Manatee County. It separates the city of Palmetto from the city of Bradenton. And there are uh, walkways along the river. The community has been very gracious to save the riverfront area for the community, for residents. It's not built up so that you can't have access to it. 
the river walk in Bradenton is one uh, example of that, that you can walk a, a linear park that runs about five miles. You can also well, bike it. Mm-hmm, you can bike it. You can run it. You can uh, uh, just sit and enjoy it, too. Okay, but that's along the side of the river. Can you get in the river? Can you kayak? Can you canoe? Yes, kayaking is one of the greatest sports here in our area. Um, People who come here have go to the preserves, as Charlie mentioned, Um, but also getting into the river. There's access from the river walk where you can get into the river and launch your kayak and go up and down. It's actually 22 miles of riverfront. And it's not rough water. Not too rough. When you get to the mouth where it goes into Tampa Bay and Gulf of Mexico, it can be rough, but farther up. Uh, for example, Jigs Landing, um, you can go up and down the Braden River, which intersects with the Manatee River. It's very nice and calm. When people come here and lucky enough to hear you or you as their guide, as we're talking right now, what's the, you know, and one of the things I want to talk about when we come back is what's the biggest surprise to them that they're not expecting to see? Because for me, even the word manatee, I asked my friends in New York to describe manatee, they can't do it. They don't know what it is. They don't know what it looks like, and that, not alone, not, you know, let alone the river itself. The one museum that you have that is fascinating to me is the Florida Maritime Museum. The Florida Maritime Museum is a place to learn about not only the maritime history of Florida, but the people who made that maritime history important. And one of the most exciting things we have at the museum is the Florida Folk School, which allows people to learn crafts that these early settlers would have done or maritime crafts such as net mending or fish filleting. And so they can come and actually experience history. Fish filleting? Yes, we do. Do you have a fish filleter on staff? We No, we have a... Uh, a visiting fish filleter. We have a fisherman <laughs> who comes uh, from the village of Cortez and he teaches people how to fillet fish. And then what do they do? They, they eat the fish? Yes, they can. Okay, now we're talking. See, you, farm to table, yeah. <laughs> sort of. They can take it home and cook it or take it back to their hotel and have the restaurant cook it. But um, they also learn how to mend nets. We have some young men. Uh, who you know, are we can laugh that. about mending nets, but let's be honest. If you don't teach it, it's lost. It's lost. And that's the whole purpose of the folk school is to teach these crafts that would be lost. Exactly. Now... Are there ships involved in the Maritime Museum? There are. There were people who built boats in the village of Cortez, different kinds of boats than we might think of, not the big schooners, but the small fishing boats, the flat-bottom boats. You know, what's interesting to me about the construction techniques of those boats is how they actually got the wood fastened. Mm -hmm. How they actually, what, what, did they use screws? Did they use nails? Did they use any metal at all in some cases? Not usually. They would use wooden pegs. Yeah. And they would also steam the wood to bend it to the shape that they needed so that it didn't even need to be fastened. Exactly. And and when you learn about that, what's, you know, it, 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 I'm always fascinated by construction methods when people had limited resources and limited engineering history, right? I mean, if you take a look at Asian woodworking, uh, if you look at uh, how they made furniture, they don't use nails. Mm-hmm. And yet, how does it stand up, right? It's the same thing with these boats. How did they stay floating? They just were done very intricately and made sure that everything, every piece fit together so there were no leaks and uh, worked very hard to do good craftsmanship. No, 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 no. There were a few leaks. Few leaks. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you tell me no leaks. Over time, I'm sure there were leaks. <laughs> right. That's part of the history. Hey, hey, Joe, we got a leak. <clears throat> there you go. Uh, but at that museum, I mean, it's, it's interactive, which is great. Yes. Right? What's the biggest surprise for people, not just at that museum, but at all the resources that you're displaying here that people are finding? 
I think the biggest surprise is um, while our history is so recent, it's also um, very interactive. All of our historical sites have places that you can go to actually be a participant in history and to feel like you have gone back in time. So can I be a cowman? You can. You no. can even dress up like a cowman. Oh, no, no. That would be a, that would be a career-ending movie. <laughs> but but I mean, what do you mean you can dress up as a cowman? At Manatee Village Historical Park, they have a dress-up area where <laughs> it's primarily designed for kids. But you'd be surprised at how many adults put those costumes on. Yeah. Well, this, this as I said, a career-ending move. Um, can you ride the horses too? We don't have any horses, uh, but you have there, any cows. <laughs> there um, are images of cows, but we have a train at Manatee Village Historical Park where you can climb up on the engine and pretend to be the uh, conductor and the, the engineer. So first you got to dress up, then you climb up on the engine, and then they take you away. Uh, well, they take your picture first. And then they take you away. <laughs> <laughs> the, the train doesn't operate? No, the train doesn't operate, but it's right there on the corner of 14th Street East and Manatee Avenue. Are you working closely with resorts like Zona Beach to, to, to educate the guests as well? We are working hard to do that. Uh, through the Convention and Visitors Bureau, uh, we provide promotional materials to the hotels, uh, particularly the folk school, which is attractive for people who are staying here for a long period of time. They can go and take a class while they're here. And as I've always said, if you can keep the kids happy, they might just bring their parents. Yes. they. Uh, the children are the ones who come and they learn and they talk about it to their parents and then the parents decide, oh, maybe this is a place we need to go. Hmm. So basically, you could get an eight-year-old to say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he wants to be a net mender. Yes. <laughs> and that would be an important industry. There are not very many net menders in our community now, so they could probably make a good sum of money mending nets. Because they're still using them. Yes. Right? They are, especially in the village of Cortez. What? Okay, that, that brings up my next question. That is, what's changed in, in those fishing techniques mm -hmm. over, over you know, generations? Well, they banned gill nets uh, right. uh, about 20 years ago, and so the fishermen are now using more hand nets, casting. Um, and so that's why it's especially important to keep their nets mended because every cast has to work. They have to make sure that they can get catch fish every time they send that net out. But it's not like the gill netting where you're getting a lot of fish that you shouldn't be getting. Correct. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was terrible. Yeah, you're just aiming for the fish that you want to bring in. Right. And then you go to the fish fillet guy. Yes. Right? See, I'm, I'm getting the connection here. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. time I come to a location, I want to go talk to the locals. What I really want to talk to are the guys who write it, who live it, who know it. And my next guest claims to know that. <laughs> See, I, I'm, I'm making you so nervous, I know. She's the executive editor and vice president of Bradenton Herald, which is not far from here. How are you, Joan Crowther? I'm fine. So most of my audience, I'm, I'm pretty safe to say, most of my audience doesn't know where we are right now. They don't, they're not really familiar with where we are in the Gulf. Uh, where we are, where even Bradenton is. Their misfortune. So tell me where we are. We are on the west coast of Florida, um, and it's just, it's beautiful. If you look out the window where we are right now, yeah. that's that's why we live here. Um, the 
golf is accessible. We still have that small town feel, but fortunately for the economy, unfortunately for NIMBYs, a lot of people have moved here and have discovered our little secret. Well, you're one of them. Absolutely. Right? You're a Missouri girl. Ah, St. Louis. Go Cards. Well, fine. <laughs> <laughs> you were doing so well. <laughs> but you moved here when? Almost 20 years ago. Wow. And how did you discover Bradenton? It was a job. Um, my uh, career brought me here, um, luckily for me, because um, no offense to people in Duluth, but I almost went to work in Duluth right before this. So talk about opposites, and I, I fell in love with this place. And you've seen the growth. Absolutely. It's one of the biggest issues we cover at the Herald. Well, let's talk about that, because even driving in from... I, I landed in Tampa and drove from Tampa. Uh, you could also get here very easily from Sarasota. Uh, but on the drive from Tampa, as I got into Bradenton, you're seeing you know, so much growth in terms of the resorts and stuff. And, and, and the challenge, of course, is how do you manage that? Because it does affect the environment. Um, affordable living has been a, a big challenge. Um, and affordable living, by the way, when we talk about that in a beach resort area, we're not just talking about affordable living for the people who come to visit. We're talking about the people who actually have to live and work here. Right, right. One of the biggest challenges that the community is faced with is trying to keep our kids here. Um, they, they love it, too, but they've got to be able to afford, you know, to find a place to live and, and work and enjoy staying here. It's not just a, require, a retirement community at all. Right. And then you came down 20 years ago for your job, but then you made a conscious choice to stay. What keeps you here? The beach, uh, the quality of living, the people. Um, this community really cares about each other. You'll find so much in the nonprofit community, and it's just endless what you can do. And, you know, if you just open your eyes, you see all the natural resources around you. Absolutely, yeah. Right. I mean, you're a big fan of some of the preserves. I am. Robinson Preserve is a mile from my front door. It's about 500 acres that the county actually purchased. It was going to be a golf course and a, a I think we, you know what? We, I'm, wow. I'm going to anger some people out there. I think we have enough golf courses. There you go. I, I really do. <laughs> do you know that Norman Cousins, who used to be the editor of the Saturday Evening Post, um, did a spoof, an April Fool's spoof, right? But it was so good. Everybody believed it, and people went absolutely nuts. They did. And you know what the spoof was? He made up a fictitious congressman who introduced a fictitious law, and the fictitious law was that they were going to eliminate all golf courses. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, it was, and he was actually responding, as the editor of the, of the, of the uh, magazine, to this supposed legislation. You have no idea what that created. And how many years ago was this? Oh, fake at least news? 20, 20. Oh, yeah. That was, <laughs> oh, yeah. You said it uh, oh. 25 years ago, uh, or at least. And, but the reaction, congressmen are issuing bills against it. Nobody bothered to realize there was no congressman who ever even introduced it. So we're dealing with passion about golf courses. But it's great that they, were, they took something that was about to become a golf course and kept it as a preserve. Absolutely. And it's, it's just, it's, it's marvelous. Um, wildlife. Uh, you, you bike, you walk, you climb, and no cars. Ah, see, you, you buried the lead on me. Uh. <laughs> I live on an island with no cars in New York. I do. The only cars we have are fire trucks. And everything else, you bike, or you bring a little wagon, or you walk. And that's why I That sounds like heaven. And that's a national seashore. Because in those days, back in the 60s, 
Robert Moses wanted to build highways out there. And that's why we all marched, my parents marched, and they got Lyndon Johnson to sign the bill making a national seashore to stop the highway. Right? No highways in the Robinson Preserve. None. None. Now, where do you like to go to hang out to eat? I want to ask you about food. Yeah, we got to, we got to talk about food. <laughs> there are endless choices, and I'm afraid I'll leave out some of my favorites. Well, give me okay. Well, let's just okay, do breakfast, but, lunch, and dinner. Go. I'm not a big breakfast. Person, me too. Okay, okay let's go right so to lunch. lunch. Right to lunch. <laughs> Tide tables. It oh. has the best grouper bites and fish tacos. Tide tables. Tide tables. It's right bef- on the edge of Cortez, right before the bridge, on the water, and it's fabulous. It's a family-owned, tiny restaurant and it's great um rod and reel well, wait wait what are you gonna order there grouper bites thank you okay and then rod and reel it's See, i'm already like we're talking seafood here yeah, yeah it's it's on the other end of Anna maria island um if you want to splurge a bit beach bistro well wait let's go back to rod and reel rod what, are you, and reel. what are we ordering there grouper sandwich grouper's the local fish and it's it's hard okay. to beat. let's say you're completely od'd on grouper what else are you gonna order crispy fries <laughs> You're my kind of girl. Uh, Crispy fries. Mm-hmm. Okay. With a little Pinot Grigio. Oh, see? Okay. Once again, you're bearing the lead. Okay. 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 And then dinner. Dinner for the best seafood, uh, Blue Marlin on at Bradenton Beach. But you're not ordering Marlin for dinner, are you? Whatever the local catches of the day. So it's the coming off the day boats. Absolutely. And that's the yeah. important thing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's fresh. Can't beat it. All right. Now, just for those meat eaters out there, is a place you like to go for... Other kinds of food? Beach Bistro. Uh, maybe you can afford to do it once a year, but it has really? the baddest. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Charlie Hunsicker joins me now. He's the Parks and Natural Resources Director right here in Manatee County. How are you, sir? I'm very good. And in the interest of full disclosure, I just learned this, a University of Wisconsin grad, so I've got to be nice to this guy. That's right. Go Badgers. Yeah, That's well, not after not after a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we'll watch this on the hockey rink. Oh, well, ho- we've never had a problem with hockey. <laughs> you bet. We've never had a problem with hockey, and we're pretty good in basketball. Uh-huh. But That's great. you know what? Let's, let's face it. I know I'm in Florida. I shouldn't say this, but the SEC obsession in, in football Okay, Alabama's going to be playing Clemson. Yawn. Yes, I know. I know. Well, you see, there's a lot of Wisconsin uh, natives that come down to Florida to take the summer, take the, take the winter, yeah. and uh, you know, we, we entertain them all. Well, of course. So obviously, alcohol is involved. But forgetting <laughs> that, right. Charlie, the bottom line is, what are you doing here? Well, I'm, I'm working here to help uh, prom- promote and protect the environment of Manatee County. And uh, it's my role helping the Board of County Commissioners here in Manatee County to, uh, to, to take a look at our important coastal areas, identify those places that are going to support our important plants and animals of Florida, and do my best to, uh, to develop them in a way that, uh, that everyone can enjoy and, and we can all benefit from. All right, well, let's get down to specifics. What's your biggest challenge? Biggest challenge here is the population growth that we are going to continue to sustain. You know, Florida is an attractive place. You know, if it's snowing in Madison, it's going to be a great time here in Bradenton. And well, so, although I would say <laughs> it's always a great time in Madison, too. Come it's on. True, true. <laughs> You're not going to get but, me off that one. Uh, no, I won't. I won't. Okay. I won't. But uh, uh, with that population growth, you know, there's always a balance. We like to have it. We talk about it in terms of recipe, recipe for uh, commerce, recipe for transportation, but a recipe for uh, retreat, passive, passive recreation, 
and just the opportunities to get out and enjoy nature. And that's what we try to protect and promote. Well, you know, when you come down to this part of Florida, you know, there's resort after resort after resort that people are coming down here, all the snowbirds and stuff. Mm-hmm. But what is their educational level in terms of their awareness of what's needed to be done? Well, the, the first question we ask is get asked is where are the alligators? And uh, from well, that okay, point, <laughs> I'm going to ask it. Come on, Charlie. <laughs> and from that point, we grow out. But uh, you know, Florida is. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Where yes, are the alligators? Well, not out here in Long Beach. Okay, Key. thank you. Okay, <laughs> so we'll make sure we're, we're covered on that. All right. If you want to go to Miami and go out to the Everglades? You'll find them. Yes, right. Yeah. That's correct. And you'll find them up here in Manatee County too, but a little further east than where we are right now. But uh, you know, Florida is, uh, has an important economy based on tourism, but it also has an important economy based on the, the way of life that we all enjoy here. And it what brings people here to be permanent residents. And uh, so what we have to offer is, is that type of uh, diversity, uh, both in uh, you know, some of the dynamic things that are happening with business. But uh, we have a great diversity of, of wildlife here, too. And it's our effort to try to get, to get people beyond the alligators and into scrub jays, <laughs> uh, into some but of the things. By the way, if, even if you include the alligators, which, since you brought it up, okay. uh, you're dealing with a lot of development here. Yes. You're dealing with more people coming down, a population mm-hmm. you know, explosion, if you will. Yes. What about the resources, the actual physical resources for the wildlife you're trying to protect? Well, that's part of the uh, the recipe we do. We we're, we're acquiring acquiring some strategic properties that that interconnect with each other along our rivers, especially along the coastlines, and uh, and giving the habitat that they need uh, in th- terms of thousands of acres. Uh, that's that's where we're headed, and then and then developing them in such a way that we don't love those locations to death. We want we want people to come there and experience them, but we don't want them to trample the area. You know, you bring up a very interesting point. Because because as I travel around the world and I start talking to people like the mayor of Venice, the mayor of Barcelona, uh, the premier in Bermuda, they're all grappling with over-tourism. They're all grappling with when can a place be loved too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many idiots, I, I use the word idiot in a nice way, but how many idiots think their goal in life is to go to Pisa and stand next to the, the tower and kind of pose like they're going to hold it up? Yeah, I mean, will you stop with that shot? I know. Right? Uh, in Venice, I don't call it the Bridge of Sighs anymore. I call it the Bridge of Thighs. Because there are so many crowds there, right? Yes, yes. Um, and the mayor of Barcelona has actually issued a statement that she's worried about becoming another Venice. So you understand where we are. Yes, yes. How do you manage growth here? Well, we, we in, in the natural resources side, you know, in, even Denali has a, an overcrowding situation from time to time up there in Alaska. Of course, especially but, in the summer. Yeah. But when we, put, when we put our preserves together, we, we make an effort to, to set aside the lands that you can walk through peacefully. But the parking lots and the activity centers are, are out at the edges. And so the internal part of many of our preserves are, are places you can get away and maybe not see a person or not see a road for three or four miles in some of the locations that we sponsor. And you have the personnel resources there to actually be very helpful to show us what we're actually seeing. That's right. We have an outreach education program here that is, again, designed to help the folks from Wisconsin coming down, and I, I'm not going to be biased, Ohio, Indiana. You know, we're the I-75 corridor that seems to attract the Midwest here, whereas the east coast of Florida pulls down folks from the, that can travel easily here from I-95. Um, from New York, of so, course. So when, we're, when we, we talk to our Midwesterners, we want to make sure that they understand that we're in a subtropical environment, that uh, with a growing season that's almost year-round, we're, we're constantly battling plants and animals that are not endemic to Florida, but can easily take root and, and take over. And you have to watch that very carefully. Yes, yes we do. Uh, a lot of people say, well, it's green, it's good. But for us, uh, it's the type of green that makes it important. And how do you actually work closely with the resorts and the hotels to educate their guests? Because one of the biggest problems I see around the world where you're dealing with resorts 
is people come down and they never leave the resorts, right? They're just self, I mean, which is fine for the resorts, and you know, if you just want to veg by the pool, but how do you get them out so they can actually see this incredible environment around them? Well, our Mantee Chamber and the Convention Visitors Bureau do a good job about moving information to each of the hotels that we have. We look forward to you know those little pocket stuffers and, and also uh, some of the live broadcasts we have on our educational TV, if they ever picked it up. But um, we, we actually um, entertain and uh, appreciate those who want to reach out and find out more about Florida than the than the view the beautiful view out the window which we have here at this resort. I'm Not to mention the quality of the sand because I hear about that all the time. That's, that's correct. Uh, hey, we we're do. talking to Charlie yes. Hunsinger, the Parks and Natural Resources Director for for Manatee County. What's the biggest surprise when you do get them out of the resort? And you, it's not just about education, it's just about enlightening them as to what they're actually seeing, what's their big, that, are, that they're not expecting. Well, they're not expecting in a population area here. We, you know, we have about 2 million people just to the north of us within 100 miles and about a million, about 100 miles to the south. But here on the southwest Florida coast, the Anna Maria Island community, Manatee County, it's a little more laid back. Uh, it, it is not as uh, crushed and, and pressured to you. So some of the surprises are I didn't know this was here, and I didn't know I could find peace and quiet by walking through Robinson Preserve or Perico Preserve and the preserves that we have here. Let's in talk Manatee about County. those preserves. Yes. What's special about Robinson, and what am I going to find there? Yeah, you're, you're going to find a Florida coastal environment that uh, that replicates what you would have seen here at the turn of the century. Uh, no buildings in sight, uh, mostly natural and native environments, and then the the bird population is very strong here in terms of wading birds and the seasonal migratory birds that pass through this area. It's a great place for bird watching, and if you're a fisherman, you know the big five: snook, trout, redfish, tarpon. Uh, and can uh, I just say something? You I, ha I hate tarpon. Okay. <laughs> I, I just want to say I hate tarpon. They are beautiful fish, though. I'll tell you that when you see them in the. Oh water, no, no, they're, they're a beautiful fish, but. Anybody who goes fishing for tarpon, why? Yeah, well, that's the sport. Uh, you don't eat sailfish either, but on the same time, it's a great catch. Yeah, you see, I'm, I'm an East Coast guy, Herschel, and <laughs> okay. if I'm going to spend that much time trying to catch a fish, it's dinner. Do you yeah, understand that's this? That's right. Well, then you'll get out with some of our guides, and you'll be able to see that uh, some of our backwater fishing here is a real experience. Redfish and trout, uh, snook, when they're in season, these are great local fish and very flavorful. When we come back, I want to get a little bit deeper with you on the preserves so people can understand that within a small distance from where we are right now at the Zoda Beach Resort, they can actually experience all this. Thank you. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest, originally from Michigan, but she's been in the Tampa area since 1977, so let's call her a local. I think we can do that. Right? Yes, you can. I can. She's the director of the Anna Maria Island Turtle Watch and Shorebird Monitoring Program. Say that three times fast. Susie Fox, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. So, where, first of all, let's get a sense of place here from where we are right now. Where is Anna Maria Island? Well, south end of Tampa Bay, and inland is the city of Bradenton. So, um, we're uh, 12 kilometers long, just across the bridge from Bradenton. Be so you're accessible, mm -hmm. but what makes it so special? 
sea turtle nesting, shorebird nesting. <laughs> Let's talk about, well, you know, when you say shorebirds, you know, I, I grew up on an island, you know, we have, of course, the seagulls, we have the herons, we have the, you know, the, uh, uh, some endangered species as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the, what are your challenges there in terms of, of the shorebirds that we may not know about but need to know about? Well, they, uh, sharing the beach, you know, we have a huge population of visitors that come in. We have a lot of residents. We have to educate them on how they can share the beach 24 hours a day. The birds um, rest on the beach. They migrate through from way up north, and they have to go another 1,000 miles south. So we have to teach them and educate them. And So you're a waypoint. We are, absolutely. The, the main thing is that I think people would like to clear the beaches of everything, and you can't. We have to... The, the challenge is to have them both well, the, on the beach. Well, well wait a minute. The birds own the beach. It's their beach. <laughs> yes, they do. And it's interesting because out here you can see people walking on the beach in the morning, jogging on the beach. They can go right through the center of where the birds are resting. The birds move aside quietly, and the people are very mindful of it. What are the threatened birds? Um, the nest on our beach is black skimmers, least terns, oyster catchers. Okay, let's go one by one. Mm-hmm. How long have the oyster catchers been around? A long time. A long, long time. The first year that I was in Turtle Watch, 1990, I was a volunteer for the program then. Um, we had our first nest, and they had two chicks, and we called them the North End Chicks. They were just darling to watch grow up. Have there, has their population increased? Um, they winter here. We have a population of about 50 of them that winter here, and I'm not certain where they come from because we, I haven't traced the bands on them, but a lot of them are banded. They are. Mm-hmm. So you can track them. Yes, we can. Wow. So when you take people to the island, I'm assuming that you can, mm-hmm. uh, what are you showing them in a way that they can actually take from that and learn from it? Well, we do give nesting beach tours. We give them for the sea turtles and the shorebirds. The idea is to educate them on the main thing. Don't rush into a crowd of resting birds on the ground. That's the main thing that we have to teach them. They are resting, feeding, maybe resting up to go back and nest. So never rush into a bunch of birds sitting on the ground. They need and you the tell that especially to the children who like to want to play with the birds. We do. We do. Now, you talk about turtle nesting. I, one, of the, one of the most incredible experiences of my life was on the coast of Tamarinda in, uh, in Costa Rica mm-hmm. with those leatherneck, uh, prehistoric, if you will, sea turtles that will crawl up onto the beach to lay their eggs mm-hmm. at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And you're out there with an infrared camera watching this amazing experience unfold in front of you. And it's, it's just, it, I wish everybody could see it. It, it. it is so remarkable. Different kind of turtles here, though. They are mostly, mostly what nests here is loggerheads. We do have occasional greens. We had five last year, which is a high, time, high number for us. 488 nests on this island, which is more than we've ever seen. And we tell everybody that the reason that's happening is that we're educating the people. And you all out there, the visitors and the residents, are making it work. And the thing is, the, the biggest problem when we were volunteering in, in Costa Rica is poaching not, there. Not so much here. Here it's, it's lighting. Um, we, everybody wants to light their homes along the, the um, golf side. And everybody's saying, please don't do that during, during the nesting season. However, season. there is sea turtle-friendly bulbs and sea turtle-friendly fixtures that are available for every single structure on Ex- the beach. Okay, I have to ask, what is a sea turtle-friendly bulb? It's an amber color. It's LED lighting. And it's a PAR-20 or a PAR-19 bulb. I have one on my front porch that gives more than enough light. 
So if you see a sea turtle wearing sunglasses, you know they're not pretty in the right lights. Probably on. don't have the right lights. Okay. So <laughs> we tell people when they're on the beach at night, in, in some... I've heard that people no flashlights. Would clear the beach, but we the it's safe on our beach at night for sea turtles and for people. One thing is no flashlights. Don't use your phone lights. Keep that sea turtle friendly. If you're if you're visiting a, a place, an establishment, a and hotel. can you and can you keep people from whipping out that cell phone and taking that photo with a we flash? We educate. I brought yeah. a bunch of education materials for you and your staff to look at that we use. That's great. Mm -hmm. And when people actually get out there and follow the rules mm -hmm. and appreciate the the space, right? What do they learn? They learn to fall in love with the sea turtle and fall in love with Bradenton and Anna Maria Island. <laughs> Which is why you came out here from Michigan in 1977 and That's never left. <laughs> That's right. Give us a website quickly. Um, IslandTurtleWatch.com. Well, that was easy. Mm -hmm. All right. Susie Fox, the director of the Anna Maria Island Turtle Watch and Shorebird Monitoring Program. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. You know, I have a rule whenever I travel, and I imposed this rule many, many years ago because it just made sense, and, and that is people try to do too much when they travel. They want to, like, see seven museums at a time, and after the first museum, your eyes glaze over. So my rule was this. Pick one museum per destination, spend three really good quality hours there, and you'll come away from it having absorbed things that actually will resonate, that will stay with you, that you can relate to your own life, you can tell other people about it. Um, the only exception I've had to that was once when I was in Montreal, I went to the Museum of Fine Arts there, and it was so amazing, I canceled my return, for I postponed it actually for four more days, and went back for four more days to that one museum, which was such a stellar experience for me, but the rule was still the same. I kept it to one museum. And where we are right now, there's a museum we want to talk about, the South Florida Museum, and joining me now, from the South Florida Museum, Jeff Rogers. How are you, sir? Good morning, Peter. I'm good. So let's talk about this. I mean, I mean, most people, and I've said this before during the show, and it's true, it applies to any resort destination, whether it's Florida, the Caribbean, on the West Coast, Hawaii, it doesn't matter. They never leave the resorts. They don't get it. They don't get what's around them. Right. right? So tell me about why they want to leave the Zoda Beach Resort, if only for three hours to go to the South Florida Museum. You know, there, there comes a time when you, you have to get away from the sun and the sand, and, and there <laughs> is more to do in any place that you're at. The beaches are beautiful. That's why people want to come here. Right. Uh, South Florida Museum is a great way to spend an afternoon, and, and let's face it, it does rain, it does get cold. In fact, we've got some of that coming our way right now. So you might have planned to be at the beach the whole time you're here, uh, but the best laid plans. So you've got a museum as a backup. Okay, but why your museum? Well, it's a little bit of everything. So you, you said three hours. I, I'd challenge you to do our museum in three hours. Uh, we've got a world-class digital planetarium. I didn't planetarium. say it was be the whole museum. Okay, well. And by the way, you started at the Hayden Planetarium. I did. Yeah, I was there for a number of years. I was a in small little dumpy place in Manhattan. Well, you yeah. know, and, and, and I worked there for 10 years, and I didn't get to see everything. So four days is a good trip through a museum. Ten years, I couldn't make it through that place. Right. Uh, so but between our planetarium, our natural history museum, the local history resources we have, uh, and, of course, the Manatee Rehabilitation Center. Uh, take your pick. Whatever, whatever you're interested in, we've got a little bit of it for everybody. All right, but let's talk about the museum itself. Okay. 
what am I going to see there? Is it interactive? What am I going to learn there? What am I going to touch there? Right? I mean, give me an idea of the experience that awaits me as opposed to just seeing static displays. So <clears throat> we've got a planetarium, and that tends to be one of the, the most uh, non-interactive types of experiences. But we do live programs with lots of questions and answers. Okay, can I be devil's advocate for a second? Sure. When you say the word planetarium, the word Florida doesn't immediately come to mind. Why not? Well, because people think of planetariums in northern areas. They think of them like in you know, Hawaii or in California. You know, but you're, we're further south here, right, in a tropical location, mm -hmm. right? So answer that question. Why would we have a planetarium? Have you been here during the summers? Tell me. You don't want to be outside looking at the stars in the middle of the summer. The mosquitoes will eat you right down to the bone. Uh, the skies are terrible for viewing because you, you've got clouds That's everywhere. what I'm trying to say. So you have dark sky in the winter. We do. This, we're coming into our season right now. Okay. See, now you've answered the question. You can have a dark sky experience. You, you absolutely can, especially out here on the barrier islands. You can get out and you can still see the Milky Way arcing up across the sky. Okay. So that's one thing, the planetarium. Absolutely. And? Well, you ask for things you can get your hands on. So yeah. right outside that planetarium, we've got a 4.53 billion year old meteorite that, that we've set out there just so you can get your hands no, on it. You set it out there or that's where it's landed? No, it did not land there. Okay. It actually landed in northern Argentina about 5,000 years of ago. Of course it did. We know these things. <laughs> <laughs> but then it eventually landed in Bradenton. I, okay, I have to ask a stupid question. Were the Argentinians happy that you were stealing their, their meteor? <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Well, 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 there's a little history associated with all of that. We didn't go to Argentina to take the meteorite. In fact, it was the Spanish when the conquistadors were making their way through. They brought it to Florida? Uh, they, they brought it back to Cuba, and it made its way back to Spain. They had found that the indigenous peoples had access to iron weapons when they were coming through. And, of course, the Spanish did not want them to have those iron weapons. So they systematically went about collecting all of the iron they could find. They didn't know they were collecting meteorite at the time. They were collecting raw materials for weapons. And what turned out to happen was we ended up with one of the greatest collections of a single meteorite in the world because it was collected so thoroughly. And it wasn't used for weapons? Not, not, not after the Spanish got their hands on it. It right. went to private collections and museums uh, and just storehouses. So one day you woke up and it showed up from Cuba? Well, a, a board member of ours was able to get his hands <laughs> was minding on his own two business. of these. Yes. Uh, a, a box showed up at the museum. See, I knew it. I knew it. Okay. With, with no forewarning. I did not know this thing was coming. And, and it was not a big box. It was only about the size of a small microwave. Uh, but inside of it was a 140-pound meteorite. Uh, my back, Did you know what it was when you I, opened it? I, well, as soon as I opened it, I did. But first, I had to unwrench my back because I reached down to pick up this small and box. And you couldn't lift it. And I said, what is in this box? It was so dense. It was so dense. Iron and nickel. Wow. Yeah, it's a fantastic piece. And how do you display it now? Uh, sit right out on top of a table with instructions to please touch this thing, to please touch this 4.53 billion-year-old piece of your universe. Wow. Now, 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 that's an interactive experience. That puts you in touch with things. And most places won't let you touch and their fancy meteorites. And here we are in Who knew? Who knew? Wow. But the, the story of how it got here is even, is even better. Oh. That's the beautiful thing about museums. Everything we have has stories upon stories upon stories associated with them. We're talking to Jeff Rogers from the South Florida Museum, not far from here. No, it took me 20 minutes to get here this morning. Exactly. The biggest surprise other than the meteorite? The manatees. I, I, I mean, I have to say the manatees. Uh, 
When I was getting ready to move to Florida 15 years ago, um, friends at the museum said, wow, you're going to get to see manatees. And I said, and said what's that? I said, I'm going to get to see what now? <laughs> I, I had no idea what a manatee was. I was a New Yorker. Uh, and you cannot help but to fall in love with them. And there are very few places where you can see them up close as we can at our place. So people come from around the world, want to see manatees, and we don't disappoint. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. My next guest, I, I'm already a fan because he comes from a location that I'm a big fan of, uh, and most Americans don't know it and don't appreciate it. And, and in fact, most of the people who even live there are always apologizing for it when they shouldn't. It's Halifax, Nova Scotia. And his name is Sean Murphy. How are you, sir? I'm good, sir. Thank you. But you're not from Halifax anymore because you're living here. I think Halifax keeps a little piece of you, but I've been living in, on Annemarie Island for the last 40 years. And you own a place there called the Beach Bistro. Beach Bistro Restaurant. You know... One of the things that I think you, you brought with you from Canada is, is a love of the environment. And, and every, if you go to Halifax and up to Cape Breton, it's just such an amazing place. Most Americans forget that's where the Titanic was heading when it, it hit the iceberg. That's right. right. Most people forget that Halifax was the place where we launched all the major convoys during World War II to go across the North Atlantic. It's just amazing history there. One of those convoys in the First World War in 1917 uh, lapsed into the largest uh, non-nuclear explosion on the planet. And basically a third of the city was and devastated. And they just uh, acknowledged, I won't say celebrated, they just acknowledged the 100th anniversary of that. That's right. Um, and when you take a look at what was left of Halifax when that thing blew up, oh my God, nothing. North end of the city was leveled. I mean, literally leveled. But now let's talk about where we are right now. First of all, what brought you down here? Probably, I, I finished law school in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and then I began to wander with a woman who is now my wife. Um, we ended up on Annemarie Island because it was just a beautiful place to stay and to live. Uh, white sand, palm trees, blue water. Yeah, and then you opened the restaurant in a hurricane. Opened the restaurant. We fought hurricanes for three days before we got the restaurant opened. Right, um, so the big item on the menu was sandbags. We had enough. We uh, ironically, there weren't much in the way of garbage bags inside the restaurant by the time we got the doors open because they were all stacked up against the exterior. And if I remember, and I think you'll agree with this, when I first came to this part of Florida, and I came down here a little bit earlier than you, I mean, the definition of sautéed was deep fried. Just uh, there was a little less oil in the pan. You got it about right, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean the, Everything food, was fried. the food choices down here, let's face it, they sucked. They did then. We had an input from some Europeans. Some of them came from Washington. Um, there was one man in particular. I think uh, Doc Clover had the Colony Beach and Tennis Club. And he ended up becoming the training ground for almost all of the restaurants that are in existence now on this coast. And, and what did you know about the restaurant business? I had slung beer when I was in college. I said, what did you know about the restaurant <laughs> <laughs> I had a good stand at Arno's in New Orleans. So I got a, I got. Uh, I think New Orleans has the has the original culinary art center for all of the United States as the original cuisine. So I learned a lot about food there. But down here, you also learned a lot about the environment. It's impossible to live this close to um, you know water and wind that can turn traitors on you without uh, becoming exposed to that. So what have you done on your menu, right? That that is is respective of that. We're respectful of that. And also, what are you doing to give back? 
first, I think what, what we try to accomplish is, and it's maybe the simplest way for me to go at presenting a meal to a, to a patron, is we try to make it perfect. Uh, if you strive for perfection, you achieve a good degree of excellence a good part of the time. That requires a couple of elements. Uh, if you always buy the best stuff that you can find and you put together the best team, then that takes you as close as you can get to some sort of perfection. But when you first came down here, sourcing wasn't easy. Now it is. Sourcing some things was, sourcing some things was easy. Um, we had uh, some elements of our menu were influenced by Nova Scotia. So Shocked. Fresh, Shocked. Fresh Nova Scotia lobster, we had the best smoked salmon anywhere. Um, and the rules in Nova Scotia, where I grew uh, up... Uh, is your salmon still coming from there? We, are, we lost the person who was delivering that salmon, so the family retired. Uh-oh. Um, and then we've, we've now moved to another family who's delivering us smoked salmon. We believe it's from almost from as where? good as the other. From where? A little town's called Seabright, just outside of Halifax. On All right, the so you stayed, you stayed in Canada for the salmon? Yes, Nova Scotia. Okay, I got you. Uh, All right, so the lobsters are coming from where? The lobsters are probably uh, Maine or Nova Scotia lobsters. Um, the focus in Nova Scotia is to get your fish as quickly as you possibly can. So the fishermen, uh, you, you're buying. When I was a child growing up, we were buying fish and lobster from fishermen uh, on the docks. Um, we try to do the same thing here. Um, the access is a little different. It's helped with cell phones. So when fishermen go out, small, uh, small fishermen go out off uh, Annemarie Island, uh, we are in contact with their wives as they are coming back in. So we can often, our fish can be so fresh that we keep it in the walk-in for a day to let the muscle tone relax. In the so fish. basically what you're doing is you're helping all the wives because you're tracking their husbands. That's I just want to make sure we got, they got this concept. Uh, they appreciate our help. <laughs> and you call it help. Yeah. <laughs> He's fishing. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.